Hello, everyone, and welcome to the TMA Ask the Expert podcast series. Today's podcast is entitled Open Forum on Acute Disseminated Encephalomyelitis. My name is Gigi DeFibri, and I will be moderating this podcast. The TMA is a nonprofit focused on support, education, and research of rare neuroimmune disorders. You can learn more about us on our website at myelitis.org. This podcast is being recorded and will be made available on the TMA website for download via iTunes. During the call, if you have any additional questions, you can send a message through the chat option available with GoToWebinar. We want to thank the sponsor of this month's podcast, Alexion. Alexion is a global biopharmaceutical company focused on serving patients with severe and rare disorders through the innovation, development, and commercialization of life-transforming therapeutic products. Their goal to deliver medical breakthroughs where none currently exist is driven by the knowledge that people's lives depend on their work. For today's podcast, we are pleased to be joined by Dr. Arun Venkatesan and Dr. Cynthia Wang. Dr. Arun Venkatesan is an associate professor at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine in the Department of Neurology, Division of Neuroimmunology and Neuroinfectious Diseases. He received his undergraduate degree in biomedical engineering from the University of California, Berkeley in 1994, followed by a PhD in microbiology and immunology and an MD from the University of California, Los Angeles. He continued his medical training as an intern in medicine at Santa Clara Valley County Hospital, followed by a residency in neurology at Johns Hopkins Hospital. Following a fellowship in neuroimmunology and neuroinfectious diseases, he joined the neurology department and is the director of the Johns Hopkins Encephalitis Center, where he oversees clinical and research activities. He is also an active member of the multiple sclerosis and transverse myelitis centers at Johns Hopkins. His current research focuses on the pathogenesis of infectious and autoimmune conditions that affect the central nervous system. Dr. Cynthia Wang is an autoimmune neurology fellow at University of Texas Southwestern Medical School. Center, supported by the TMA's James T. Lubin Clinician Scientist Fellowship Award. She completed a pediatric neurology residency at the University of Michigan, where she developed interest in rare neuroimmunological disorders in children. Her fellowship training thus far has involved seeing adult and pediatric patients with TM, ADEM, NML, ON, with, ON with Dr. Benjamin Greenberg and his team. Her primary research interest is in immune-mediated and demyelinating central nervous system conditions in children, particularly ADEM. Her current research project involves studying the long-term neuropsychological and quality of life outcomes in ADEM. So welcome both of you and thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks so much, Gigi and the TMA. Um, so just to start, um, if we could just, if you just give a little bit of an overview about what acute disseminated encephalomyelitis is and, um, you know, what the presenting features are and how it's diagnosed. Um, Dr. Wang, if you could start. Um, sure, yeah. Uh, thanks again for inviting me. Um, and certainly I have the honor of um, completing my fellowship with the generous support of the TMA. So I'm very happy to be here on a topic that's of personal um, and uh, scientific interest to me. Um, so uh, ADEM, or acute disseminating encephalomyelitis, is a rare autoimmune disorder, um, typically affecting the brain and the spinal cord. Um, it's seen mostly in young children ages 5 to 8, but certainly can happen in adults too, um, because ADEM can affect um, multiple parts of the nervous system. The manifestation can be quite variable and can um, be things like headaches, neck stiffness, fever, 
and then become things like confusion and um, decreased um, level of alertness, lethargy, weakness. Um, our understanding of ADEM um, is still incomplete, but in many cases, ADEM is preceded by uh, an infection um, of um, a viral or bacterial infection in um, about three quarters of the cases. So we think that um, that infection may trigger some sort of a dysfunctional immune response that causes injury um, in the central nervous system. Um, I might just uh, pause there and see if Dr. Vigatasan has anything to add. Cynthia, I think that was a re really nice summary. Um, the, the only other thing I might add at this time is that typically ADEM is considered a monophysic disorder, meaning a disorder that occurs once. Uh, very rarely would it uh, potentially recur. And, and that's one of the distinguishing features between ADEM and related conditions that are also immune-mediated and that can affect the myelin in the central nervous system, such as multiple sclerosis. And so you, you mentioned, you know, that it's usually monophasic. So are, and are there any, you know, any other criteria that is used to diagnose ADEM? Um, and is there a difference between, uh, you know, diagnosing pediatric ADEM versus adult ADEM? So, so I would say that, that ADEM is, is typically a disorder uh, of children. So the vast majority of cases of ADEM occur um, in children under the age of 10. And that's where most of our knowledge of ADEM actually comes from. Um, and so what we've learned from, from pediatric ADEM, we typically abstract to adult ADEM as well, although there, there may be some subtle differences. And uh, Cynthia might, might comment on that in a bit. Um, uh, you know, in terms of diagnosing the disorder, um, it's typically a process in which there is a lot of inflammation that occurs at the same time. And so one would expect that symptoms evolve quickly over the course of a few days. And on imaging, that there are signatures that suggest that the multiple lesions that one sees on brain MRI all arose around the same time. And, and that's, um, that's really important for us clinicians in evaluating a patient with suspected ADEM. When we see an MRI in which we see lesions that appear to have arisen at different points in time, for example, we're evaluating a patient with acute symptoms and on MRI, they have new lesions, but they also have lesions that look like they originated uh, uh, previously, months or years previously, then that really uh, raises a red flag for ADEM because it suggests that we're dealing with one of these chronic or recurrent demyelinating disorders. So again, acute symptomatology, uh, MRI that shows lesions that occur around the same time, and a lumbar puncture that typically doesn't show some of the signatures that we see in conditions like multiple sclerosis. So in multiple sclerosis, or MS, uh, we have a test called uh, oligoclonal bands, which essentially is a demonstration of antibodies that are present in the central nervous system that are not present in the blood. Oligoclonal bands are, are present in the vast majority of patients with MS and are very rarely present in patients with ADEM. So that's another way in which we can prognosticate when, when we see a patient as to whether they're more likely to have ADEM or more likely to have one of these chronic uh, demyelinating disorders. 
Great, thank you. That's a really good overview. And Dr. Wayne, do you have anything to add in terms of you know the differences between pediatric and adult ADEM or in terms of diagnosis? Um, yeah, that's a, a good question. I think there are subtle differences, but for the most part, um, what we see has um, a lot of overlap. Um, the um, multiple, uh, the International Pediatric Multiple Sclerosis Working Group um, actually set out definitions for ADEM. Um, I think most uh, most recently updated a few years ago, um, but with the most recent update, they included the presence of encephalopathy, which is kind of a fancy term meaning just kind of altered consciousness, altered awareness, some sort of change in you know um, the child or adults uh, functioning. Um, they included that, and they found that the um, the sensitivity of adding that um, was great. So by adding that encephalopathy, excluded a lot of people who may later on be, uh, manifest as having multiple sclerosis. I don't think that encephalopathy um, distinction exists as much in the adult uh, literature, and you know they can have um, multiple deficits, but not necessarily have the, that amount of confusion, or it's not as read um, um as I think easily, you know, um, visible for adults. But certainly when we, a child comes in with uh, lethargy, uh, extreme irritability, um, that kind of raises the flag um, that this is a, you know, a fulminant or just a, a very you know, rapid and significant change in their baseline that is suggestive of um, ADEM. I think that's, just to add on to that, I think that's a great point that, Cynthia, you just made about the encephalopathy or the change in consciousness or behavior uh, of a patient, even in adults, although, as you point out, it may not be quite as common as it is in pediatric ADEMs, in adults who come in with an acute demyelinating disease, if there is an encephalopathy, then that really does raise the stakes for the diagnosis of ADEMs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a good point because, um, like you mentioned, uh, ADEM is more common in pediatrics. When it gets to be um, more adult uh, age patients, we get concerned about the chronic relapsing diseases like multiple sclerosis. And we know multiple sclerosis can present with multiple deficits, but they typically do not have that confusion or behavior change that we see in ADEM. Great. Thank you both. Um, and then, uh, Dr. Venkatesan, you did mention about, you know, MS. Um, we did get a question about um, someone was asking if ADEM was linked to NMO or neuromyelitis optica um, because their daughter was, um, you know, had ADEM in 2001 and last year was diagnosed with NMO. Yeah, yeah. So, so this, this question comes up a lot, um, mainly because, you know, we're still getting a good sense for the natural history of these demyelinating disorders and we're still in the process of developing specific markers for the various demyelinating disorders of the central nervous system. And so examples of these demyelinating disorders include ADEM, as we've discussed, multiple sclerosis, uh, neuromyelitis optica, which is another demyelinating disorder of the central nervous system that typically affects the, the spine and the optic nerves, um, and, and others. And, and so um, when we are faced with the initial inflammatory disorder in a patient, um, we're, we're often not certain whether this is going to be monophasic and therefore ADEM, or whether this is going to transition into one of the more chronic demyelinating disorders, such as MS or NMO. I've talked a little bit about some of the, uh, for example, spinal fluid signatures in multiple sclerosis. Um, 
we're, we're still, you know, the field is still working on more specific and sensitive biomarkers in MS. But for now, MS really is a, a clinical disorder that's supported by MRI and sometimes by spinal fluid findings. There's not a single test that actually cinches the diagnosis of multiple sclerosis. And so when a patient comes in with that first attack of immune-mediated demyelination, oftentimes we have to wait and see how the process unfolds before we can understand whether this was ADEM or MS. The situation's a little bit different for uh, this other condition, neuromyelitis optica or NMO, where we tend to have better blood-based biomarkers for the disease. And so what most of us do at this point when we see a patient with suspected ADEM is that we'll go ahead and screen for NMO, and we can do that with a relatively simple blood test, or, or now actually two blood tests uh, that can identify several different biomarkers. Okay, great, thank you. Um, and then moving on to uh, questions about symptoms, um, someone asked that they, so their son had ADEM five years ago, and one of his initial symptoms was his eyes were hurting, and that he was having headaches, and that he still has headaches quite often. Um, is this a common uh, ongoing symptom, um, or is it usually just a, at the presentation? Um, I can start with that one. Yeah, I think it, uh, headaches in particular is, you know, a complaint that many people have, just, you know, it's a frequent uh, neurological symptom, um, but certainly when it overlaps with something that a child came in with as an initial symptom of ADEM, it can be quite uh, anxiety-producing. Um, I guess my approach to, in terms of um, first answering that question um, or exploring that question, you know, is this just um, a, a result of the history of ADEM, which is, you know, kind of a neurological insult on the brain um, that can maybe predispose a child to, you know, having more headaches um, just because the brain's not functioning at it the way it used to, or is it a recurrent attack? Is it, you know, is this another uh, marker that may be concerning for new inflammation? Um, so I think once you answer that question and if there's not concern about new inflammation or you do tests to rule out that there's no, you know, MRI findings or um, uh, findings of new inflammation, I think you can um, kind of approach it more from a symptom management perspective. Uh, one thing I encourage uh, my patients to do is to keep a headache diary. Uh, I think a lot of um, the process of uh, treating headaches is to identify the, the triggers of the headache. So if someone, you know, um, is not routinely getting enough sleep, not uh, hydrating enough, not eating regular meals, um, that can certainly um, predispose them to headaches. Um, we know stress, anybody can have stressful situations that can bring on a headache. So um, if we can avoid those triggers, that can be a, a powerful way to reduce headaches. Um, if the headaches become more debilitating and, you know, say affect uh, the child's ability to attend school, then it may be advisable for the family to talk to their physician or neurologist about whether medications would be helpful to prevent um, headaches from coming on. And that can be, um, you know, over-the-counter methods such as um, uh, vitamins and supplements like magnesium and uh, riboflavin, or it can be more prescription-geared uh, medications that um, uh, can be in multiple classes, such as anti-epileptics and blood pressure medications. So um, I think getting a good sense first of how frequent the headaches is, how debilitating they, they are, that can be a good way to approach the, the medical provider on the best way to treat them. 
That, that's a really nice approach, Cynthia, that you outlined. Um, just wanted to add a couple of things, which are, you know, certainly headaches are, are not an uncommon aspect of the acute presentation of ADEM for a couple of reasons. Um, one, there can be some inflammation of the meninges, the covering around the brain, if if it's right next to one of these inflammatory lesions, which can sometimes happen. Um, and certainly in, in the setting of meningeal irritation, one can get headaches. Um, alternatively, there can be lesions in portions of the brain that can actually result in acute headaches as well. So, you know, from that standpoint, it's, it's not uncommon to have headaches as a, an initial presentation of ADEM. And, and then in terms of headaches following encephalitis, for example, at our encephalitis center, we, we follow a number of patients, and um, headaches are one of the most common complaints amongst those who have had an episode of encephalitis, whether it is ADEM or an infectious encephalitis or even one of the other autoimmune encephalitides. Um, and as Cynthia mentioned, we, you know, we don't quite understand exactly why that's the case, why after an acute inflammatory injury, one might be more predisposed to getting uh, a recurrent or chronic headache syndrome. Um, but I think, you know, she very nicely kind of outlined an approach to be able to help patients with some of these chronic headaches. Great. Um, and then, you know, other than headaches, what are the ongoing symptoms that someone might deal with as a result of having um, ADEM? And, you know, what's the long-term prognosis? Cynthia, you can take a stab at that? I can take a stab at that, yeah. Um, again, uh, since ADEM is uh, multifocal and can have lesions in various parts of the brain, um, I think the, the prognosis depends where the inflammation was. So, um, you know, some kids have uh, inflammation that can involve their spinal cord and that can lead to transient weakness that um, hopefully improves over time, but still that can lead to um, some um, residual deficits uh, that don't go away in terms of uh, uh, strength or coordination. Um, since it's often a brain-based disorder, we can see um, more subtle deficits in cognition, so in terms of um, processing speed, um, short-term memory, um, you know, inhibition of behaviors, impulse control, um, attention, those kind of domains. So I think it depends partly where in the nervous system the ADEM affected. Um, and then we kind of judge the prognosis um, based on the recovery course. So if a child um, does well in the beginning and seems to return to much of his or her normal function, that usually um, uh, portends a pretty good prognosis. but. I think as we're starting to discover when we look more closely and ask the right questions in terms of more subtle cognitive deficits, we do uncover um, residual deficits that um, may manifest over time, especially as a child gets older and has uh, increasing academic demands and social demands. I would agree with that. I, I think I, I would echo that, you know, overall ADEM is actually considered to have a, a really good prognosis. Um, Part of that is that, you know, the, the majority of patients who are affected are children and that there is an amazing capacity in many children for plasticity and for rearrangement of the nervous system after injury um, such that, that there can be really significant recovery. Um, the, the flip side of it, though, is that, is that it's, there are cognitive 
you know, sequelae from ADEM. And, uh, you know, it's probably underappreciated how significant this is because uh, I think we, in the past, we haven't really asked the right questions about, um, about how impaired somebody might be, how impaired functionally and cognitively a patient might be. Uh, oftentimes, physicians who aren't as as nuanced in terms of their understanding or treatment of ADEM, if they see that a patient came in, uh, you know, uh, unconscious and not moving anything, and they leave the hospital uh, being able to speak and being able to move, well, that means full recovery. That's not, certainly not the case. Uh, many patients with ADEM, as well as with other acute encephalitides, are left with cognitive deficits that can actually pretty significantly impair their ability to going back to leading the full lives that they had prior to their injury. Yeah. Thank you. So, uh, Dr. Wayne, did you have anything else? Uh, no, I, I completely agree with that. And I think, um, you know, part of the, the difficulty in studying ADEM is that since um, our thought is that p kids do well, um, there's not a lot of follow-up. Uh, it kind of takes specific um, groups asking um, the questions over a, a sustained period of time to really uncover those answers. Um, and I know uh, in our group, Dr. Lana, uh, Lana Harder, who's a neuropsychologist, um, has observed that over time, um, there may be a sort of a growing into process where, you know, kids who get ADEM as a young child, um, you know, they're not expected to do as much in terms of their cognition and speech, but when they get to a certain level where, um, you know, school becomes more challenging or their attention needs to be more refined to be able to uh, function at the way that their peers do, we really start to see those problems. So um, in our clinic, our approach is to um, follow kids for a sustained amount of time, um, even if it's intermittently, such as once a year, just to get a sense of, you know, if any uh, difficulties come over, um, occur over time, and if there's ways we can support that through accommodations at school. And I would say that approach is just so important because but one of the major gaps in our understanding at this point really is in terms of the long-term cognitive outcomes in ADEM. And the only way uh, to really get a sense for that is to do what you guys are doing, which is to follow patients over time in a careful way in order to be able to, to get that understanding. Great. Um, and then we did get a question about this the epidemiology of ADEM in the U.S. So do we know how many people get ADEM every year? How many, how many of them are children versus adults? Um, and is there any difference in terms of the epidemiology for viral-caused ADEM versus not? Um, I can talk about the pediatric. I think um, I'm a little less familiar with the adult uh, epidemiology, but I think um, in a couple studies, uh, the incidence was something like four to eight in a million, something similar to that. So it's quite rare. Uh, and then in terms of um, it um, following an infection, uh, it's been as high as I think 75%. So I definitely think there's some sort of link between having infection in the month uh, preceding um, the attack of the ADEM. Uh, and historically, there was concern about immunizations. I'm a little uh, more skeptical about that data. And I think more um, uh, refined studies have looked, and I think the incidence is quite low. It's really hard to kind of um, 
disentangle that because as a you know children get vaccinations so frequently and they can get infections so frequently but um in the studies i've looked at uh, incidents of adem following infection versus following a vaccination it's many folds higher that adem develops after infection than a vaccination yeah and the the incidence in in adults is, is about five to ten fold lower than in children um so it, it is so it is a fairly rare disorder, um, but one that, uh, you know, that can certainly exact a fair amount of morbidity and can cause cognitive dysfunction and, and for which, you know, we really just need to learn more about. Mm -hmm. um, and then we did get a question asking if there's anything on the horizon to at least treat the symptoms um, like pain or stiffness or incontinence. Um, Dr. Wang, do you know anything? Um, yeah, again, I think first just parsing out whether the symptoms are related to residual symptoms, so if they're pain, stiffness, and similar areas that maybe the initial attack of ADEM occurred in, then um, it's most likely because, you know, the body is under some sort of physiological stress, and because of having had an insult in the past, it's just not as uh, well equipped to kind of deal with that. So. Um, first ruling out any infections that could be contrib contributing to the symptoms, and then again, really careful history taking, you know, what causes the pain? Is the pain more of a neuropathic um, sort in which there may be a burning or electrical sensation, um, which comes from, uh, you know, injury of the nerves and they're just not firing um, or uh, processing information in the correct way, that can be treated um, fairly effectively with medications such as Neurontin, Lyrica, Cymbalta, um, but pain can be more nuanced and result from other things like um, stiffness, like the um, participant mentioned, um, muscle stiffness or spasticity, um, spasms, those can certainly um, be very um, uh, painful and that could respond better to treatments such as uh, muscle relaxants, such as baclofen and um, tizanidine, Flexerel. Um, and then something we see as a result, especially in our um, TM population, is that weakness um, can cause all kinds of mechanical issues where uh, a child may be placing, you know, more stress on joints that weren't, you know, they weren't built to really manage that type of um, stress. And um, those issues can lead to, to joint pains and um, that might be better treated by, you know, non-NSAIDs uh, uh, or um, inflammatory medications such as that. Um, and I think what was the, the last thing, bowel dysfunction. Um, that's unfortunately one of the, um, I think most uh, residual and long lasting symptoms um, that may never completely get better, but I think just making sure that there's not a, a coexistent urinary tract infection that could be causing worsening urinary function is important. If there's any acute decompensation in urinary function. And then in some cases, uh, an individual may still have um, uh, uh, kind of poor emptying or incomplete uh, emptying and, um, you know, just having that issue may require things like uh, catheterization. Um, but over, over time, it usually improves. So it, it may be talking to the neurologist, the physiatrist, or a urologist and trying to, to best manage those symptoms. And, and just to, to add to that, I think you're absolutely right. So spasticity is, you know, can be a huge problem 
uh, in patients who have suffered from central nervous system inflammation and demyelination, whether that is in the brain or in the spinal cord. And um, you mentioned uh, uh, some treatment options. One of the other options, if that stiffness and pain is more focal, if it's, for example, just mm, one leg, yeah. an arm, you know, would be botulinum toxin or Botox, which has turned out to be quite effective for focal stiffness mm -hmm. and, and the pain that's associated with that. There's, there's also um, a fair amount of interest in trying to understand whether, uh, whether newer medications can be effective. For example, cannabinoids are now being actively investigated. So these are, these are compounds that are, that are found in marijuana that can be extracted and purified uh, or potentially even synthesized in the lab um, that may have specific effects on receptors in the nervous system um, that could potentially modulate spasticity or pain. And uh, a number of studies have suggested that, at least from a patient perspective, that there's subjective improvement in measures like spasticity and pain uh, with cannabinoids. And so now the question is, are we going to be able to find objective improvements that we can actually track and follow over time? That, that's just one example of newer medications that are being brought to bear uh, to the problem of pain and spasticity following ADEM. Um, yeah, Dr. Venkatasan, that's a great point. It's certainly a question that comes up a lot um, uh, in our patient population. Um, and, you know, I think we as clinicians and um, like people in the medical community, we, we don't study things, you know, alternative and complementary approaches. So, you know, there's a huge emphasis on studying, you know, how the mind interprets pain. So some things I've, I've recommended to patients is um, thinking about other techniques such as um, biofeedback or acupuncture, um, certainly um, done by somebody who's qualified to do those things and, you know, at the recommendation of your, your medical provider. But just you know, if medications are too sedating or cause too many um, intolerable side effects, then to maybe talk to your provider about things that are not pharmacological that may be beneficial. Um, for spasticity, I think somebody having a, a very regular stretching routine is critical. So um, there's a lot of different ways and all of them sort of add up. So um, you can use, you know, multiple approaches to really get um, symptoms under uh, better control. Yeah, that's a great point. Both. Um, and so, uh, Dr. Venkatesan, I know earlier you said that um, EDEM is usually monophasic. Um, we did get a question, though, from someone who said they have a child with uh, multiphasic EDEM, and they wanted to know if there's any relevant treatment known for in between the attacks, um, you know, to, to prevent them or, or moderate them or maybe just make the immune system work correctly. Yeah, it's, it's a good question. I, I think um, one of the things that, that we really need to be clear on is, is how extensive of an evaluation has been performed in order to try to understand whether there is some other condition at play. And, and what I mean by that is that, you know, could there be some other chronic demyelinating condition, whether it's neuromyelitis optica uh, or MS or one of these other conditions? Could, could there be a, for example, systemic autoimmune condition? lupus or Sjogren's syndrome, Bachette's, for example, that can result in recurrent 
central nervous system inflammation? Or even could there be a, a chronic infection that might periodically erupt? And so um, I think, you know, before really putting my dime down on, on recurrent ADEM, I would need to be I would need to be very certain that all of these other conditions have been reasonably ruled out. Um, if that's the case, if, if there's been a, an extensive for these other conditions that can result in recurrent uh, central nervous system inflammation and nothing's turned up and this really does look like it's an autoimmune process that's affecting the nervous system, typically after the second episode, um, I, I would uh, probably place uh, a patient on, uh, on an immune uh, suppressive medication. Um, I say probably because a lot of this depends on the patient, on the family, uh, on the age of the patient, um, and on, um, on the perspectives of the patient and family towards chronic medication, side effects, and so on. And so I would at least have that discussion with the patient and family regarding potential benefits and side effects of that approach. Um, and, and then uh, together with the patient and family, make an informed decision about how to proceed. Now, if there's, if there's then a third episode of central nervous system inflammation uh, in the absence of treatment, I, I think that really does tip the scales towards being a little bit more aggressive in terms of treating with uh, immune suppression or immune modulation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. That's really the approach. I think with the with a second attack, it's a bit more of a um, discussion with the family. But uh, at the third time, it's it's a pretty you know good signal or um, indication that the immune system is dysfunctional and can you know would love to potentially wreak more havoc and cause inflammation if it could. Um, I guess I would just step back and also define, um, some people may not be um, familiar with what multiphasic ADEM is um, you know, defined by, I guess, the medical, medical community as, um, and that is kind of a second event that fit the criteria for ADEM that occurs after three months. Um, a practice that we've um, started uh, doing uh, more commonly is just uh, getting a baseline uh, MRI of a patient. Um, sometime after that three-month period just to, to know sort of what the brain looks like at that point. And then if there were any future symptoms concerning for uh, another attack, we could uh, repeat the imaging. And if there are new lesions that argue just um, against uh, certainly the classical monophasic form of ADEM and should maybe raise questions and um, uh, uh, lead to further testing, like Dr. Venkatesan said, about alternate causes of a, a relapsing um, inflammatory disorder. And, and I would add that I, I completely agree. Getting that, getting that post-acute baseline MRI is actually really critical um, so that one has a good point of comparison for anything that might happen in the future. And, you know, we tend to do that in, in all of our patients with, with an acute uh, encephalitis um, because things can change in the acute period in terms of the MRI. And so, you know, what, what appeared on the very first MRI when a patient comes into the hospital may actually be very different from the appearance of the MRI when they're discharged from the hospital. And for that reason, we, we, we agree. We think it's, it's really important to get that post-acute uh, baseline MRI scan of the brain. 
And relatedly, you know, how, um, you know, there are certain follow-ups that people should be doing with their doctors and like MRIs over time, you know, how, how often and how long after onset? Uh, I think in the pediatric population, it, it depends. Um, certainly like to get that baseline comparison after, um, you know, three or four months. But then after that, it depends on, uh, in part, the, the age of the child. Um, in children, it's a little more, um, uh, I, I guess you could say risky, but just that they would need um, sort of general sedation just because a child um, really can't be expected to hold still for an hour-long study or uh, however it may take to, to do a study like that. So I think in our younger population, um, we uh, kind of lean more on the parents letting us know if there's a, a change in the child's uh, functional status, and that would prompt um, getting that study. Uh, in an older child, we may screen annually um, for a, a few years just to make sure we don't see it, someone who can do the study without needing to be sedated. Uh, I don't think there's a, you know, there's a correct answer in this, and a lot of it may depend on features of, you know, the uh, initial um, presentation. So if there were any kind of um, uh, oddities to uh, the ADEM presentation that makes us think that, you know, maybe this isn't the correct diagnosis, then more frequent surveillance may be indicated. Yeah, I, I would agree that a lot of, a lot of that is, is dependent on, on one's evaluation of the patient following the acute episode. And, you know, if there's concern for things evolving or changing, then obviously we're much more aggressive about getting more frequent MRIs. Um, in the absence of that, uh, you know, we, we, the, the interval between the acute uh, MRI or post-acute MRI and the next one, it, you know, it can be six months, it can be a year, but essentially you want to do at least one or two more MRIs over mm -hmm. the year or two to ensure that there's stability, that there is not an accrual of new lesions that would suggest that the diagnosis is not ADEM, but rather one of these other chronic demyelinating disorders. Um, and then, uh, Dr. Wang, do you know of any clinical trials or um, uh, studies that are available for people with ADEM? Um, thank you for asking that, Gigi. Um, I'm actually um, starting up a project uh, looking at ADEM, uh, in particular, uh, long-term long um, cognitive uh, outcomes and quality of life outcomes um, at UT Southwestern. Um, it's termed aperture or um, assessment of pediatric and adult encephalomyelitis related outcomes, um, understand, reveal, educate, sort of paralleling, paralleling what um, CAPTURE did for transverse myelitis. Um, we just got the approval uh, at Children's to start enrolling for the study, um, and I would invite people to look at the TMA website about the study to see if they might be interested. Um, it's not a interventional study, so we wouldn't necessarily, you know, put anybody on any sort of treatments, um, but really just look at um, the initial history, the tests that was that were done, um, look at how those uh, features of the illness and the treatment that the individual got may um, relate to how they do, you know, years down the line. Um, so if uh, anyone is interested, um, there is an email that we're using for that. It's um, pdconquer, P-E-D-I-C-O-N-Q-U-E-R at utsouthwestern.edu. Um, if uh, someone were interested, they can uh, email that, and me or another researcher uh, associate will get back to them. Um, we hope with this study to start to ask the questions of, you know, how things 
manifest over time, especially with um, cognitive functioning. Um, and I think there are other studies, um, probably from many other centers, but I'm just not as informed about them. Yeah, I, I would just add that that we, we've been doing something similar uh, here at Johns Hopkins for some time now with, with all of our patients with encephalitis or encephalomyelitis, uh, where we are capturing them prospectively and then following them over time and assessing them um, both in terms of cognitive and physical domains in order to get a better understanding of, of the natural history of, of the disorder and of outcomes. And it sounds, Cynthia, like, like there are opportunities um, uh, where we might actually be able to work together on this uh, to, to help our patients. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, you know, the TMA is about these rare uh, neuroimmunological diseases, and a lot of the time we need multi-center um, studies to really um, make significant findings that you know, we can actually interpret into practice. Um, and then we did get a question, too, about um, any stem cell therapies. Are there any um, potential studies for ADEM with stem cells um, on the horizon, or have there been studies in the past? So, so there are studies um, ongoing in terms of autologous, meaning taking one's own cells and transplanting them um, in multiple sclerosis, so taking one's own blood cells and, and doing a transplant. Um, uh, the studies are, are still not, not definitive. I think there's a lot that we still need to understand. Um, but there, there is, you know, there is some hope that these types of approaches will lead to, for example, um, better remyelination or recovery following the initial inflammatory demyelinating event. Um, and so, I guess I would say there's there's a lot of interest in these types of approaches that 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 as far as I know they haven't specifically been applied to ADEM mainly because it's it's a you know the the population of patients affected by ADEM is quite small and so investigators have started with with disorders uh, in which more people are affected and it may be uh, easier to recruit patients with those disorders but. But at some point, if we are seeing positive signals from some of these other patient populations, then I think there may be an opportunity to translate things to, to ADEM. Yeah, I would agree. I think um, uh, in uh, domains such as transverse myelitis, um, in particular, there's a lot of um, new studies that may be um, in the near future about you know either using um, direct injection of stem cells to see if they can help remyelinate um, or uh, in MS sort of to use stem cells to, um, or to, to sort of ablate the own immune system that might be dysfunctional and then, um, you know, kind of reboot it and let it um, restart again into hopefully immune system that isn't um, as overactive or dysfunctional. Um, I think in ADEM, one has to weigh the potential risks of um, these invasive procedures versus um, you know, the, the functioning of the child. And since so many kids do pretty well, I think there's a maybe a larger role for, uh, you know, therapy, um, such as um, neurobehavioral therapy, um, speech, language pathology, other types of therapy that are less invasive and may um, just allow the, the natural um, processes of, um, you know, the brain development to 
kind of uh, make the right connections over time rather than um, introducing something like stem cells. And then we, um, we did get a question about um, that. So this person's TM or ADEM is believed to have been caused by reactivated um, VS, VZV or varicella zoster virus. Um, and they're a 43 year old um, person and they're, you know, they were just wondering if there's any recommendations for or against administration of the shingles vaccine when they reach the recommended age. So I'd be glad to, to tackle that one. Um, you know, I, I think that, you know, when I hear a question like that, um, one of my one of my questions is, is this really a recurrent or I'm sorry, was this a relapsing ADEM or a single ADEM? No, no, a single ADEM. It's single yeah, ADEM. Yeah. yeah, yeah. My my question then is, you know, was this really ADEM, meaning was this a you know, for example, a post-infectious demyelinating process, or was actually a reactivation of varicella zoster virus in the nervous system, wherein the virus is directly causing disease. Uh, what we know about viruses like varicella zoster virus, which is the virus that causes chickenpox, as many of you know, uh, is that once you get the virus, it actually remains dormant in the nervous system. Uh, it settles in cells called ganglion cells. Um, and during one's lifetime, the virus can actually reactivate, uh, meaning it can escape its dormancy. And the majority of the time that it does that, it actually reactivates out into the skin, and it causes a condition called shingles, which is, as many of you know, very painful, um, but relatively self-limiting. In the minority of cases, that reactivated virus can go back into the central nervous system and it can cause, for example, myelitis, it can cause encephalitis or encephalomyelitis, and it can look similar to ADEM. So, um, you know, one of my questions would be, you know, was this really ADEM or was this a reactivation of varicella zoster virus in the central nervous system? And if it was the latter, then it sounds like you know the patient was treated with uh, appropriately with acyclovir, and uh, the recommendation would probably be to get the vaccine uh, when appropriate. Um, if, on the other hand, this was a reactivation of the varicella zoster virus, say in the periphery, that is in the bloodstream of the patient, uh, that then led to an immune-mediated demyelinating attack in the nervous system, ADEM, that is varicella zoster virus triggering ADEM, that's a completely different ballgame. And I think um, recommendations about vaccination in that setting are less uniform. It's harder to know what to do about vaccinations in that setting. Not those are great points, and I think that's a question with a lot of infections. Um, we know ADEM seems to happen in certain times of the year where, you know, people are sick with different viruses and bacteria, and there's not been, you know, certainly any single virus or bacteria that's been implicated, and a variety of things can lead to ADEM. Um, I think this also is important in uh, diseases such as acute flaccid myelitis, which um, you've covered on um, previous podcasts in which 
there is um, reason to believe there may be um, a direct uh, kind of virus um, injury to um, the the spinal cord. But then we're also exploring whether you know an over exuberant immune response may be perpetuating or you know worsening that injury. Uh, and those questions are kind of the center of research studies that are currently being done. Right, and we we did get it relatedly. We got another a question about actually herpes zoster virus, um, and you know the uh, this person was just wondering, you know, if there's more research on looking at viral causes of ADEM as opposed to bacterial um, or not. So, so it turns out that it's actually a fairly similar question because herpes zoster virus is is another name for varicella zoster virus. Uh, they're, they're the same virus. There's just different terminologies because varicella zoster virus is part of the herpes virus family. Um, so it can be known by multiple names. And, and it just goes back to this point that varicella zoster virus, is, it's a very interesting virus. It can cause um, acute encephalitis or encephalomyelitis. It can be uh, multifocal, meaning it, it can affect various parts of the brain, just like ADEM can. Um, and it, it can occur either in a monophasic way or in a multiphasic way, meaning it can come back. Um, and so it's just one example of how a virus uh, could mimic ADEM, and there may be other viruses that can do that. Um, I think that the challenge that Cynthia described is that in terms of infectious triggers of ADEM, it really looks like there are many, many possible triggers. And so uh, it may be very difficult to get a more specific understanding as to how a virus or a bacteria even may trigger ADEM. I, I will tell you that I've seen cases here at Hopkins uh, where I'm fairly certain that it's a bacteria that triggered a patient's very classic ADEM. So I'm certainly open to that possibility. I just don't know if we're going to be able to get more specific uh, uh, information as to uh, how that occurs and how that might inform treatment. Because regardless of whether there is uh, a virus or a bacteria that instigates the ADEM, um, if this really is a post-infectious demyelination, meaning uh, an immune-mediated de demyelination that follows the infection, then the treatment is based on that immune reaction, uh, not necessarily on the virus or bacterium that triggered it. Right. Okay. Um, and then, so we're we're actually getting towards the end of our time. So I'm going to try to get through um, some of the remaining questions we've gotten as we've been um, talking. Um, so you know, we didn't talk a lot about kind of the acute treatments for transverse myelitis, but someone did specifically ask about um, IVIG. Um, and it's used in ADEM. Um, yeah, I can start. I think um, I, you, you said transverse myelitis, but probably you meant um, ADEM, but you know, it, no, 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 that, that is actually pretty, um, you know, uh, indicative of sort of uh, our current, unfortunately, somewhat crude way of treating uh, acutely these types of uh, immune-mediated um, diseases. Um, 
IV corticosteroids, IVAG, which is kind of pooled um, antibodies that come from, you know, a pool of donors, and then a, a third therapy called plasmapheresis or plasma exchange, where we basically uh, remove from the blood, um, you know, these, uh, uh, you know, potentially uh, pathogenic or disease-causing antibodies. Um, those are all sort of a, acute treatments. There's not been uh, enough studies to say that one works better than the other. Um, our general approach is to kind of go from the, the least invasive approach to the, you know, potentially more invasive and also depends on sort of, sort of the severity of presentation. So it's not uncommon to start with uh, IV corticosteroids just because it can be given through an IV. Um, IVIG and plasma exchange could potentially have more side effects for IVIG. Um, it can often cause, you know, headache or blood pressure changes or um, renal dysfunction. So it's all about kind of weighing the uh, potential risk of, of the treatment um, with, you know, how a patient is doing. Um, in terms of, I think that maybe the question was also, how does it work? Um, again, something we're uh, uh, sort of still struggling to, to fully understand, but um, we think that perhaps giving, um, giving more antibodies um, than a patient uh, normally has may tell the patient's own immune systems to sort of calm down and not produce its own antibodies, which may be the more disease-causing type. Um, and in the cases of things like plasma exchange, actually just you know manually removing the antibodies that could be causing or perpetuating the disease. Yeah, I think that's a great summary. And then is there a, uh, you know, what is the prognosis for someone who had their, their diagnosis for ADEM come too late? So um, after, actually after five to six weeks um, after onset, uh, Dr. Ben can you get, get this one. So, so the question is, what, what would their prognosis be if they have had ADEM for five or six weeks and not have been treated? Is that, is right, that the right. question? Right, so the diagnosis came five to six weeks after, you know, the onset. Yeah. I see. So, uh, you know, I, I think the question gets at how soon sh do we need to be treating patients with ADEM? And uh, I think uh, experience suggests that, that the sooner that we treat, uh, the sooner we control the acute inflammation and potentially the less neurologic injury can occur. Having said that, uh, in ADEM, and, and we, we see these patients a lot because patients may not be diagnosed for weeks, maybe at other hospitals, and then they get end up they end up getting transferred to Hopkins, and so we see this not uncommonly. Uh, we you know we make the diagnosis of ADEM, we begin treatment five or six af weeks after, and there's a good response. So I, I think that the inflammation in ADEM can certainly persist for weeks. Um, it's, it's why in the criteria for multiphasic ADEM, it's why the stipulation is that, is that you would need to have another attack of neurological disease three months out from the first one because there's a recognition that one can have continued inflammation and fluctuation of disease for the first few months. Um, and while there is acute inflammation going on, there is potential for medications like steroids or IVIG or plasma exchange to help and to have effect. So I would say certainly not all is lost um, if the diagnosis is made, you know, five or six weeks after onset. That certainly uh, we would we would adopt the same kind of treatments that we've been talking about. 
and that there can be improvement. Mm -hmm. And sometimes when it comes to like a juncture of care where there's, you know, another team um, reassessing the patient, especially after several weeks, uh, it may be helpful to, you know, repeat studies such as MRI to look for, um, you know, um, changes that suggest that there's ongoing inflammation such as, you know, contrast enhancing lesions or sample the uh, spinal fluid to see if there's any evidence of inflammation to see um, engaged uh, you know, potentially the amount of repair that can be done with, you know, further treatment. Okay. And then how um, can someone, so we I've got a question, you know, how, how can they be sure that their child's doctors have the most up-to-date information and research in order to care um, for a child with ADEM? Is there any particular resources or, um, you know, information that's useful for this? Yeah, I would say, um, you know, certainly uh, kind of finding a partnership with a provider. Um, we understand and recognize that this is a rare disease. Um, somebody may not have access to a neurologist or a neuroimmunologist where they live, but just finding someone who is open-minded and able to, um, you know, uh, look into the literature and be up-to-date with new um, findings. I think something that we didn't talk about that I did want to at least uh, mention is, um, um, like Dr. Venkatesan said, we're starting to recognize a different syndrome that is caused by uh, um, um, an antibody to something called myelin oligodendrocyte glycoprotein, or MOG, M-O-G. Um, and it can cause, um, it can manifest initially as ADEM, but um, be a part of a relapsing illness that can look um, sometimes similar to neuromyelitis optica syndrome. Um, so uh, probably in the next year or so, we'll be um, able to test, you know, anyone will be able to send this test and see if a, a patient has this antibody. And there's some research to suggest that persistent elevations of this antibody may actually fit in more to the category of a, a relapsing disease such as MS and NMO. Um, and uh, looking at uh, reputable sources, uh, I think the TMA is an excellent resource. Um, the newsletters um, really, you know, summarize sort of the ongoing research well. Um, just looking at those um, reputable resources and keeping up to date with the medical literature is uh, excellent way, um, you know, to, to know what is um, the newest recommendations for management of ADEM. And, and just to add to that, um, so in terms of the, the MOG antibody uh, that Cynthia, you mentioned, so we're now assessing for that on a, on a research basis here at Johns Hopkins. And like you mentioned, there are plans to commercialize this soon in the United States. Um, in terms of other resources, uh, there are additional resources for patients and families. Um, uh, so I, I work closely with the Encephalitis Society, which is based out of the UK. They actually pronounce it the Encephalitis Society there. <laughs> and their website uh, is actually pretty, uh, a, a, quite a good source uh, of information for patients and families. They have uh, specific information on ADEM there as well. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, thank you both so much. Um, we're unfortunately at the end of our time, but we, um, you know, we always like to continue these conversations and we'll have additional podcasts in the future. Um, I did want to tell you one of the um, people listening said wanted to thank you both very much that they found it wonderful and enlightening. So just wanted to share that with you both. Um, and, you know, to thank you for your expertise and generosity. Um, and so, yeah, we very much appreciate it.